Today we are continuing in our Lenten teaching series in which we are walking with Jesus kind of day by day through the last week of his life all the way to the cross. And then finally on Easter to his resurrection. And again, as we've said, it is a week that regardless of what you think of Jesus, it truly, it changed, it transformed history. And so in previous weekends, we've looked at the events of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, heading from the north of Galilee down to Jerusalem. Then we looked at Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And then we focus on the events of Monday through Wednesday as every day Jesus went to the temple to teach about and proclaim his kingdom. And now today, although it's Palm Sunday for us today here, we come today to what Jesus walked through on the Thursday of that Holy Week, a day that's now known among followers of Jesus as Maundy Thursday. And I remind us in this that the gospel writers, as you read the gospels, they have this overarching theme as they lay out the detail of Jesus' life. They just want to be so clear about his identity, that Jesus is king. That's what they say and portray again and again. So when we look at Jesus, as we've noted in past weekends though, we know he wasn't the kind of king people were expecting. That's why eventually they crucified him. And that's why in this series, we're asking the question, so what kind of king is Jesus? And what kind of kingdom is he ushering in? And what then does he expect of us? The subjects of his kingdom, those of us who choose to follow him. And so with those questions, we come to Maundy Thursday. And Maundy Thursday actually gets its name from a Latin word, mandatum. It, it just simply means mandate or commandment. And it's linked with a Thursday because on that Thursday particularly, Jesus laid out some mandates, some commandments for his followers. And in order for us to kind of catch the flow in the passage in Luke we're going to walk through today, I want to kind of break the story we're going to look at into four elements, all right? We're going to look at the preparations, then at the table, the meal, and the reformation. Four elements, preparations, table, meal, Reformation. Got it? All right, let's lean into this. Let's start with the preparations of that day. And here's the thing. Uh, when we go to the gospel to see what took place on what we call Maundy Thursday, we find that the gospel writers are pretty silent about what Jesus did during the daytime of that holy Thursday. I mean, he might have spent it the way he did Monday through Wednesday, going through the temple, Mount, teaching there. But we really don't know for certain because gospels don't really tell us. In fact, really the only thing we know he did during the daytime on Thursday is recorded in Luke 22. So if you want to turn with me, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Luke chapter 22. In your Bible or Bible app, I encourage you to bring one or the other as we look at this. So let's hear what it says. This is Luke 22. And as we hear it, remember this is a word of God. And this is what we read, Luke 22 and verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve of the disciples. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. 
So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd, somewhere kind of hidden. Then came the day of unleavened bread, that's Thursday, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will we have us prepare it? Jesus said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went, found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Thursday was a day when the people of Jerusalem were making their preparations for the Passover meal. They would eat it after sundown on that day, on that Thursday. They'd share this meal of a sacrificial lamb that had been prepared for it. And so Peter and John... They were called by Jesus to find this guy carrying water. And think of this, Jerusalem at that time would have had in Passover about two million people there. Not an easy task, it would seem like. Shouldn't be hard. Two million people, a guy with water. Okay, we'll look for it. Then they had to go to the upper room where they would leave the meal, or rather have the meal. They'd buy a Passover lamb. It had to be a lamb that was a year old without any kind of blemishes on it. They would then take that lamb to the temple mount where a priest would then offer it sacrificially. The priest would take the bowl, a bowl, catch the blood of that lamb, put it on the altar as a sacrifice to God. Then from that place, Peter and John would then take that sacrificed lamb back to the upper room. They would prepare it and roast it there, and then they would prepare and make the final preparations in that room for the Passover. So on Thursday during the daytime, we really don't know what Jesus did, but Peter and John had a very busy day. We know that. All we know is during the daytime during, of that Thursday, Jesus told them, get ready for this meal. That's what it was about. All of it was about preparations. But here's the thing. When we come to the evening of Thursday, it's like the Gospels come alive in their descriptions of what Jesus did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, tell us just in great detail what happened on that evening when Jesus goes to that upper room with his disciples and as they share in what we now call the Last Supper. And after that supper, we know they'll go with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray in great agony. We know Judas Iscariot will lead the temple guard out to the garden and have Jesus arrested there. We know that Jesus will then be taken to the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' homes, the high priest's home. And there, Jesus will be sentenced to die by the Sanhedrin. All of that happens on Thursday night. And in fact, John's gospel is so focused on the events of that Thursday night, John devotes five and a half chapters of his gospel to what happens on just that one evening. And so there's clearly so much that we could look at when we focus in on that Thursday. But for us today, I just want to focus our attention in today's teaching, especially on that Last Supper, on that meal, and how that meal kind of guides and directs us in how we live and worship in Christ's kingdom, right? So all that was a preparations. Let's then turn to the second element of the story, and it's this. It is the table. Really, the table? Yeah. 
Because I realize this. I realize that most of us have a picture in our mind when we kind of imagine what the Last Supper looked like. And for most of us, our picture of that final meal is shaped by Leonardo da Vinci, whose most famous work, of course, is the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> so profound. Maybe not, but actually, one of da Vinci's most famous works is actually his portrayal of this Last Supper. If, in fact, if you go to Milan, Italy, if you go to the convent of Santa Maria delle Grazie, you see this on the wall of the refectory there, this beautiful, magnificent painting. That's a picture that comes to mind for us when we see Jesus at that Last Supper. Jesus sitting at the table there, kind of like our supper tables, all the disciples sitting on one side of the table. So that's kind of what comes to our minds when we think of the Last Supper. But although it is, it's a magnificent painting, da Vinci had it wrong, unfortunately. So let's consider how the Last Supper actually unfolded. And to do that, I want us to begin by considering the triclinium. The triclinium. A triclinium was actually a table. It was in a U-shape that was really common for that day, both in Israel and Roman colonies. And there were really three segments to that kind of table. Let's throw up the next picture. I'll give you an idea of what it looks like there. And, and that kind of table, three-sided, it would be open in the center so that servants could come, serve the people eating at the table. Now, a triclinium was actually low to the ground. In fact, this next picture gives a more accurate description of it because it was a table, really three couches is what it was that you actually reclined at. You would actually lean on the cushions as you reclined at the table. That's what it gets its name from. Tri meaning three, there we go. Clinium referring to you reclined at it. That's what a triclinium was as servants would come and serve you as you just kind of rested there. And, and understand, this is what a formal dining table looked like in that day as you had a meal with friends, like Passover. And you would then recline at this table with no shoes on because you would leave your shoes, your sandals at the door because sandals and feet were a mess in that day. They were grimy. In, very impolite to eat with your shoes or sandals on in that kind of meal. And so this is what Luke says about that meal. This is back Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus, what did he do? Read it with me. Reclined at table. And the apostles with him. There he was, reclining at a table. This is what would happen. That Just picture this. You would actually, as you ate, you leaned on your left hand because your left hand was viewed as the unclean hand. And then you would eat with your right hand. Okay, now as we see in this picture here of how people ate in that day, their feet behind them and barefoot, that actually helps us understand what took place, for example, in Luke 7. Where in Luke 7, we read the story of Jesus. He was eating at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Remember what happens? A prostitute walks in, and she weeps at Jesus' feet while he's eating at the table. And she weeps at his feet because that's really the closest she could get to him at the supper table. Or we imagine the scene in John chapter 12. That, that was six days before this Thursday. Jesus, again, he's reclining at a dinner table with Lazarus this time in Bethany. Mary comes in and anoints Jesus' feet with perfume because that's how they were aligned. 
And, and this then also helps us understand how things kind of then unfolded when Jesus gave one of his mandates, one of his commands on that Maundy Thursday. Let's read it. This is in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What a group. And Jesus said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who's the greater in our day and age? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not one who reclines at the table? Isn't that the way society views it? That, that's what the disciples were doing right then, reclining at the table. They had the position of honor according to society. But Jesus tells them this, verse 27. But I'm among you as one who, what? Serves. In other words, Jesus saying there at the table, Hey, my followers, you, you see these servants here taking care of our needs, coming and going as we lay down, reclined at this triclinium? Theirs is a place of true greatness. You want to see honor? It's what they're doing. Because there is greatness in servanthood. And then the Gospel of John, in John chapter 13, it tells us that Jesus, to demonstrate this then, he gets up from that table and begins to wash his disciples' feet, which again was a menial, it was a filthy job. It was really to be left only for slaves and servants. While the disciples reclined at the table, and the disciples weren't happy about this. They, they weren't pleased with what Jesus was doing. They were embarrassed by it because here's their rabbi, their leader, their Lord, washing their feet. And they know we should have done it first. <laughs> they knew it. And then when Jesus, he eventually works around, himself around the table, washing their feet, he finally comes to Peter, and Peter says to him, you aren't washing my feet, Lord. And then Jesus says to him, this profound, listen to this. Jesus says to him in John chapter 13, verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, Peter. Jesus says to Peter, understand this, Peter. If you don't get this about my kingdom, you're not even with me. That's how far you've missed the boat if you don't get this. And then Jesus gives this command, John 13, verse 12. Jesus said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you're right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also, you also should wash one another's feet. You call yourself a follower of me, then this is a role you're to take in life. This is what I call you to do. You want to know what my kingdom is about? It looks like this. You serve one another in love. This is what it looks like to be part of my kingdom. So Jesus says to us, he says to you, okay, are, are you serving in a ministry in my church or in my kingdom in some way? Remember, you are not a volunteer in that role. You are what? You are a servant. Let's just be crystal clear in this. Friends, we are not volunteers, we are servants. In fact, can you read that with me? We are not volunteers, we are servants. Let's be so clear in this. Because the kingdom Jesus ushered in is a kingdom where no one is above taking a servant's role. 
You know, I read this passage even this week, and what comes to mind for me, one of the images that comes to mind for me is back in the church I grew up in. It was a comparatively smaller church. One of the members of our church, though, was a, a powerful lawyer, CEO by that point in Chicago. And, and one day on a Sunday morning, a little kid in our small church lobby threw up profoundly, if we could put it that way, in the lobby. Now, I was in high school. I was standing there with a bunch of my high school friends. And you can imagine, we said, I don't want to clear that mess up. You know, just kind of looking at it and seeing there. And while we're thinking that, this CEO, a follower of Jesus, he's in a suit and tie. He just immediately goes, he gets some rags and a garbage can from the kitchen, brings it out without fanfare and just with a smile, kneels down and begins cleaning up this vomit. And clearly, I think you can tell, that's stuck with me. And friends, that is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, he washed his disciples' feet. So if we're following Jesus, remember, you are not a volunteer. You are his servant. So how do you think you're doing on that one during the week? When you walk through your week, would you say, you kind of expect to be served. That's kind of your default uh, perspective. Or do you walk through your week just looking, how, how can I serve others? And, and that really brings us to the third element of this passage. We'll just call it the meal. Let's look at verse 15. It says this in Luke 22. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired. I mean, in the Greek, it's like, I have hungered, I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what was this last supper? It was the Passover. It was a Passover Seder. It's the meal that actually our Jewish friends are going to receive and celebrate after sundown this coming Friday. So we ask what was going on here? I mean, in this story, what was going on with this Passover, this, this first day of unleavened bread, which was an eight-day festival, really? So let's just do a quick review in case any of us aren't familiar with these terms here. Because by the time of Jesus, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were kind of synonymous terms. And that word Passover, that referred particularly to one event in Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt, as we read of in the book of Exodus. And you might recall that Moses confronted Pharaoh to deliver and set free the Hebrew people. And God then brought these 10 plagues on Egypt to display his power, his sovereignty. The 10th plague, of course, was this angel of death that was sent by God through Egypt to kill the firstborn son in every home. But God told the people of Israel, if you will take the blood of a sacrificial lamb, put it upon the doorpost of your home, your eldest son will be spared. The angel of death will pass over your home because of the sacrificial spotless lamb. And that's what they remember at Passover, this sacrifice that was made to spare them. So they had for 1,500 years, up to the time of Jesus, for 1,500 years, every year they celebrated Passover, remembering this, that God passed over us, that death passed over us because of the Lamb. That's what was going on. And then additionally, they had this image of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which look, unleavened bread, this is. Why unleavened bread? Well, remember the story of the Exodus, and remember this. They took only unleavened bread because their deliverance was so sudden. 
They didn't even have time to allow the bread to rise. They had to head out quickly. That's why they used unleavened bread. Secondly, why unleavened bread? Because in Scripture, at times, leaven is used to refer to something positive. In fact, Matthew refers to the leaven of God's kingdom, how we bring a leavening influence positively so into our sin-stained world. But far more often in Scripture, leaven refers to darkness, to the influence of sin. And so why unleavened bread? Because it reminded them when God delivered us from Egypt, we were delivered from the darkness of bondage, of the suffering we endured. He brought us into a new life. And so we eat unleavened bread. And so this incredible meal, all the imagery of this brought together, when they would come together, they'd have salt water there together at the Passover meal to remind them of the tears they shed and then bitter herbs to remind them of the suffering they went through. All of this to draw a picture for them so at least every year they remember, we've been delivered. The lamb has delivered us and God has been faithful in us. Powerful images, aren't they? All in that meal, which then leads us in considering, I know it's a term we've used in another context historically, but let's consider the fourth element, the Reformation, let's call it. Because this meal, this was the Last Supper really in two senses. I mean, in a tangible sense, this was the Last Supper that Jesus will have before he goes to the cross, before he dies but also in a theological sense, understand, this was the last Passover supper. Because at this last supper, Jesus brings this grand reformation, a reorientation to a 1,500-year-old Passover meal. Look at how he does it, back in Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, which would have been one of the four cups of wine that were part of a Passover meal. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this to mind among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, unleavened bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, understand, this is now a new covenant in my blood. Jesus brings this just dramatic redefinition of the Passover tradition meal. Jesus now says the center point of this meal will no longer be Israel's deliverance from Egypt because for you, my followers, it will not now be this Passover meal from this point forward will be centered on, it'll be remembrance and celebration of the final, ultimate deliverer, your sacrificial lamb. It will be centered on Christ. It will be communion for you now, Eucharist, the meal of Thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper. Because I am, Jesus declares, the final Passover lamb. For you, for us, I am. My shed blood now will be to 
applied to the doorposts of your life, as you believe on me and trust in me, you will be delivered from ultimate death. You will be spared from judgment, from eternal separation from God because of me. The angel of death, as it were, will pass over you and you will receive life as you trust in me. And, and understand this, the unleavened bread, it will now remind you as you take it that you've been set free from the darkness of bondage of the life you used to live. You've been delivered by Jesus, by God, into a new life, a new place for you. And listen then to how the Apostle Paul then describes this meal. Listen to what he says about communion. This is his letter, first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now understand, I think many of you actually know in the Greek what that word participation is. It's the word koinonia. Want to say that with me? Koinonia. We know that word. Now we typically translate that in English as fellowship, often. But our English word can't get at what that word actually means in the original Greek. Because in the original Greek, it means much more than that. Koinonia, understand, it was an intimate sharing with it was an experiencing of another. Which means for us, friends, understand this. What takes place in communion, it goes beyond what took place in the Passover Seder. Because as Paul said, as Jesus emphasized, as followers of Jesus have declared for 2,000 years, when we receive communion, it is not just a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. It is certainly that, rightly so. But listen, in communion, in the Eucharist, we are participating with, intimately sharing with, having an experience of being spiritually fed by Jesus Christ. That's fairly profound, don't you think? So, so let's just consider this. For most of the 2,000-year history of the body of Christ, in almost all of its traditions, whether you look at Catholicism of Orthodoxy, Anglican, Protestant, one of the central elements of spiritual nourishment for followers of Jesus has been the meal of communion. This reformed Passover meal that Jesus initiated on that Thursday night of Holy Week at the Last Supper. So think about this with me. Really, in the same way that I hope you would notice, I hope you would be concerned if we didn't come and receive from God's word regularly when we gather. Really, we should to the same degree be concerned if we don't regularly receive from the meal of Christ when we gather. In a similar kind of way. Because understand this, I am not overstating this. If, if you ask followers of Jesus for the, really the first 17, 1800 years, okay, what is at the heart of discipleship? What, what would you say are the most essential elements to be fed and grow in as a disciple of Jesus? Understand this. Their united response would be, well, for one, coming to the table of communion. 
without question. And really, if you don't believe me on that, I encourage you, Google it. Look, go to the church fathers. Look at those great saints that re-revere their teaching. Go to Augustine, go to Luther, go to Calvin, go to Wesley. See if they do not have one united voice upholding the priority of this meal for followers of Jesus, how essential it is for us to be fed. Okay, so can you be a disciple of Jesus without regularly coming to the Lord's table? Well, yeah. But you'll be a malnourished disciple because receiving from, being molded by, being fed by communion is that essential to being a follower of Jesus. It doesn't save us. Be clear on that. It doesn't save us. But it is means, Paul says, that God has given us his church to direct us, to shape us, to comfort and spiritually feed us. Now I know how some of you might be responding in your mind. Because I know some might even be thinking. But the thing is, if we receive communion less often, it, it makes it more special. Because it could easily become kind of a rote weekly exercise if we receive Eucharist every time we gather. And, and so it really kind of keeps communion more fresh, more special. If we only come to the table monthly, for example. And really would say to a degree that that is true. But wouldn't we respond by saying, but that completely misses the point, right, right? C coming to communion isn't special because it feels kind of unusual or less common. I mean, it, it's not more effective in my life because communion feels rare. Friends, understand, communion is special, just to use that word, because our living God has chosen to work through it. He is active in it. That's what Paul says. We are participating in Christ in it. So if we come to communion less often, here's the reality. We'll be fed less. Just as the case would be if we came to God's word less often. And, and that's really why over the last years, we've been intentionally increasing the frequency with which we receive communion as a body. Because it really is a conviction of our elders, of our pastors, that it really needs to be just a prominent part of our gatherings as, as we meet throughout the year and walk along. And, and I realize this additionally. I know some of you might be thinking, but communion doesn't always feel beneficial when I receive it. I want it to, but there's many times where it, I don't really feel anything unusual when we take the bread and cup. And be encouraged, that can be very true. But understand, communion's effectiveness in our lives isn't based on our feelings about it. I mean, for example, I have eaten so many meals at lunch or dinner when it didn't feel like it was beneficial in any kind of way, you know? When I ate a meal, I'd feel like that didn't really nourish me much. But it still provided me with sustenance, even though I didn't feel like something special going on within me while I was eating. And, and I understand this. I know some people feel, or, okay, when we receive communion, I got to kind of stir up some special feelings or emotions for communion to have any kind of impact on me. Be encouraged. That's not the case, friends. At, at times, you might be moved spiritually when we take the meal. 
At times you might not be. But remember as we receive communion, the key in this is not your feelings. You know what it is? The key is what our God does in you through this meal, nourishing you. That's what is critical in this. So we ask, okay, Clyde, so what's the application of all this to us? As we look at the preparations table, the meal, and this reformation, simply this. So come to him. You got to call out to him, worship him. You know, the brilliant New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. When Jesus wanted to give his followers, then and now, a way of understanding what was about to happen when he went to the cross and was crucified, he didn't teach them a theological theory. Jesus didn't say at that supper, let me explain substitutionary atonement for you. Jesus didn't say at that supper, okay, this is what it means for me to be Christus victor, Christ your victor. Theories have their proper place, but they weren't the main thing that Jesus gave his followers, no. What did Jesus give them? He gave them an act to perform. He gave them a meal to share. He gives us the same. And it is a meal that speaks volumes more than any theory can express. Because the best way of finding out what it says, what it means, is of course to do it, to receive it. Not just talk or write about it, it's to come to the table. So why don't we do that? Let's come and receive from this reformed Passover meal that Jesus had given to us by his grace. As his followers, as we join the centuries of Christ followers coming together. And as we come and we take unleavened bread, we'll pass it around till we received it and be reminded of this, we've been set free from the darkness and bondage of another life in Jesus, amen? And so we thank God that the body of Christ was broken for you. And Father, we ask in this meal, would you spiritually feed us with it? And likewise, then we take this cup. And as we hold this cup, as simple as it seems, we remember Jesus saying, understand this. This cup, it's a whole new agreement, a new testament, a new covenant in my blood. And remember as well, Jesus saying, there will be a day when I drink this with you. But will we, my kingdom comes again at the second coming of Jesus. Can you imagine? So should we come with expectation this meal? Yes. Will our feelings match the moment? May, may not. But we come in faith, asking God to nourish us in Jesus. Amen? So let me pray and then we'll come. And Father, we come here, we come at Mosaic, we come seeking you and pray as we receive this meal, Father, again. We pray you would bring to our minds in remembrance of what the Jesus has done for us, the wonders of it. And Father, in this as well, we come in faith praying you would nourish us spiritually in Jesus through it. Coming in faith, waiting for the day when we'll receive it again with your son. Oh, we wait for that day. And all God's people say, amen. So let's come.